Father, we do desire a closer walk with you. We desire a sensitivity to your word and to your Holy Spirit that would continually draw us to you. Father, thank you for the reality that we bear our sin no more and that you are our sin bearer and that we have salvation by faith through Christ alone. Thank you for our Bibles, Lord, for what they mean to us. Forgive us for our neglect of them. We are easily distracted, we admit that. Easily taken by lesser things. And so help us to refocus this morning. Help us to regain our equilibrium, to reestablish our foothold upon your word, to renew a sensitivity to your spirit within us, and to have eyes fixed on Jesus, and to go from here, and to walk in obedience, and to live lives as worshipers of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we've gathered, and it's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Well, has God ever spoken to you? Has God ever spoken to you? And if he has, what did he say to you? We use that language quite a bit around church world, don't we? The Lord really spoke to me the other day. When God speaks to you, how does He speak to you? I was thinking even as we sang Blessed Assurance, this is my story, this is my song. Everybody has a story, don't they? And believers in the Lord Christ, it's, it's, it's good once in a while to just step back and to hear one another's story. And often when you hear someone's story of how God was at work in their lives, they will say somewhere along the line as they were living and maybe far from Christ, living in sin before they understood their salvation, and then they might say, and God spoke to me. God grabbed a hold of me. Well, how does God speak to you? I use that language a little bit. I think we have to be very careful because obviously God has spoken to us with an authoritative and a clear word, a sufficient word. And I think it's, um, oh, it's very risky probably to use that language to say, God spoke to me. Well, are you sure it was God? What did his voice sound like? But I know most of the time what we mean is something like my experience when I was uh, a sophomore at Appalachian Bible College and I was discouraged one night. I was, uh, it was after washing dishes in the dish room and I was um, uh, just the Lord had been at work in my life in a variety of ways. I was dating a girl I shouldn't have been dating and I wasn't doing well in my studies. And I thought, you know what? My dad lives in Kalamazoo, Michigan and I'm in Beckley, West Virginia and I can keep walking right off this campus and it was like the first time in my life at age 19, I realized my dad couldn't take me anymore. And that I didn't have to live for Jesus if I didn't want to. And you know, I can take you right to the spot on that campus, put a circle and an X through it, where it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I would say, and the Lord spoke to me. And he said, if the resurrection isn't real, keep walking. And it all came together in my mind that this is a true word. It's a clear word. And it's all based upon the reality of a living Christ. And that's a way that we use, and God spoke to me, right? I didn't hear an audible voice. I didn't hear, there wasn't fire. I didn't fall on my face. Well, this morning, as I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15, we are finishing up chapter 15, and God has been speaking to Abraham. His, his name is still Abram. In a, in a few short weeks, we will get there eventually. We have some, just some phenomenal passages ahead of us now. I know it's been a little bit maybe borderline tedious getting through some of this material. And I got, like I said, hung up on 15.6 a little bit. I thought that was important for us to look at. The last half of Genesis 15, I'm going to tell you, is one of the strangest passages of Scripture if you're not very familiar with your Bible. I mean, if you were just reading through and you're reading along and, you know, you got Adam and Eve in the Tower of Babel and, and you've got Noah and all that stuff going on and, it's, and you get to Abram and you kind of understand what God's doing here and you read the last half of chapter 15 and I want to tell you, it's just flat weird. It's hard to make sense out of it a little bit. Well, let me tell you that 16 and 17 and 18 and so forth... There are some, just some incredible stuff coming up and very, very relevant for today. 
And uh, so don't miss the months ahead this fall as we try to make some, some good ground through the book of Genesis. But this morning, as God speaks to Abram, let's try to understand the passage first. What is it that's going on in this strange passage? What is it that God is saying to Abram? And then we'll wrap up, of course, with trying to ask ourselves, what in the world does that have to do with me? All right? Because isn't it interesting? Even as God is speaking directly to Abram, here we are, what, um, four and a half, five thousand years later, something like that, I don't know. God is speaking to us through the record of his word. Interesting, isn't it? Well, let's begin. We know that uh, we've been in, we've reread and read and reread 15, 1 through 6, and God has made a promise to Abram about raising up out of him a people. And now, the last half of the chapter, the best way to understand it is it breaks itself down into God is going to clearly speak to Abram about the land. So God has made a promise that it basically has an A and a B to it. A is, Abram, out of you, I am going to raise up a people. Look up at the stars, Abram, first part of chapter 15. Your children from your loins, not from your servant, not from an adopted son, but from you, even though you're an old man, and Sarai's as good as dead, out of you I am going to create a people, a nation, that will outnumber the stars in the sky, essentially. And Abram believed it with all of his heart, he believed it. Abram knows for sure right now, this is going to happen. Chisel it in stone. From my body is going to come a son, and we're going to have a biological son, and we're going to have a nation. He believes it, and it was imputed righteousness at that point. And now God is going to expand on this covenant promise and say to Abram, not only am I going to give you a people, but he's already repeated this several times in chapter 12 and chapter 13. He has told Abram this, and he is now making a covenant before Abram. Abram, this is what I'm going to do. Abram believes him about the people, and now God is going to explain to him, and this is going to be your land. Two parts to it, a people and a land. Let's read what God says to him. And I think as we read, you will recognize what I mean by when I say, this is a strange passage of scripture. Listen, verse seven. He also said to him, God did, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to make possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it, it being the land? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half, then, verse 11, birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and a dreadful, the word there is horrible, dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphites, the Raphatites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Evidently, all people groups that Abram was aware of 
having traveled through this land. Isn't that an interesting passage of Scripture? Now, what do you do with that? What's going on here? We have the promise of a people, and now God has clearly made a covenant promise to Abram about the land that he's going to possess. Let's break it down and let's kind of understand in, in almost a commentary style, uh, reading and understanding what is happening in the passage. The first thing we have, and I'm going to make ten statements for explanation here. The first one is a statement of confirmation. A statement of confirmation. God makes a statement, a verbal statement of confirmation to Abram in verse 7. Look what he says. He's already told him in the end of verse 5. Then he said, so shall your offspring be, as many as the, as the stars in the sky. Abram believed the Lord, verse 6, and he credited to him for, as righteousness. God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. A statement of confirmation that, Abram, I am giving you a land. It is interesting in all the commentaries that I read, about four different commentaries on Genesis that I use, all pointed out the parallel to the, to the phraseology, to the words that God uses to Abram that are almost identical to what he will use with Moses over 400 years later. Look what it says. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, you don't have to turn there. God is going to say almost the exact same thing to Moses. I am the Lord who has brought you up out of Egypt to bring you into this land. And so there's, a, in a sense, a foreshadowing. There's a parallel between God's promise to Abram and the fulfillment of that promise in Moses. But God makes, a, number one, a statement of confirmation that, Abram, you're going to have your own land. I have brought you here, and this is going to be yours Secondly, look in verse 8, we have from Abram now a request for information. We have a request for information. You need to understand that Abram is, I don't think anyway, doubting God in this question. Notice verse 8. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? You know what this is a little bit like? It's not like... I think that Abram very much, based on verses, verse 6, Abram very much believes this to be true. It's true. It's going to happen. But Lord, how is this going to happen? It's a little bit of the feeling when the angel appeared to Mary. Remember before the birth of our Lord Jesus? Mary, you will be with child. And then the reality that this will be the promised one. And Mary says what? How can this be? How, how can all this take place? It's not a doubt. I believe it's going to happen, but I just have no idea how it's going to happen. And isn't it interesting how often God will be at work in our lives and we cannot explain that work? I think that most of us find that very frustrating. But here is Abram making a request for information, not doubting, just wondering, Lord, how can this be? Well, God answers the question kind of over the course of the next several hours in Abram's life. And so the Lord immediately, number three, instructs Abram to make, number three, a strange preparation. Notice what he tells Abram to do in answering his question. He doesn't just come out and answer it. He says, so Abram says, verse 8, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer... Okay, that's a young female, a female cow, for lack of a better term, that's never had a calf. So it's a heifer. Okay? A goat, a ram, I take that to be a female and a male of, of the goat family, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. We know that Abram was a man well endowed with livestock, so it probably wasn't that difficult for him to give the instruction, go do this, go do this, go pick out that one spotted heifer, she's three years old, she's nice looking, bring her, bring that goat, bring that, bring that. What in the world is going on here? And Abram brought all of these, okay, there is a strange preparation now that God is making. And Abram, verse 10, brought all these to him and cut them in two. I have burned in my mind as a six-year-old boy butchering on granddaddy's farm in Wisconsin for the very first time. I didn't know you did that. And I can picture just in living color 
that big, probably 1,500-pound steer, 1,200-pound steer, putting his head in that bent-up old rusty red feed bucket of my granddad's. And then he put his head in. My daddy shot him with a 22 between the eyes. And he turned upside down so fast, I couldn't believe you could hit the ground that fast. And my grandfather cut its throat, and it bled out on the ground. And we began to work on it. And I was just like, whoa, wow. And this is what Abram does. Takes him a little while. And then he gets his knife, sharpens it, and he cuts these animals in half. This is crazy, isn't it? We don't do this kind of stuff. Not in America. This is like Arabic stuff or something. Abram, actually, it was a Mesopotamian practice. And we're going to understand a little bit more about it in a few minutes. But look what Abram does in this strange preparation to to literally seal the contract that God is making, this covenant. He is doing something that is familiar in Abram's mind. And he is having Abram set it up. And so he cuts in two these animals. They're pretty heavy. Three-year-old heifer, that's a pretty good-sized animal. And you got to cut through it, you know? And I take it, I don't know if he cut it long ways or if he cut it through the middle. I'm not sure which. But he cuts the thing in half, all right, and he drags one of it half over, and then he drags the other half over, and so you got this bloody, gut-spilled-out animal side by side, facing each other. Then he takes the, the ram, and he cuts that in half, he drags it over, and then he cuts the, the, other, the female goat and the ram, and then he, it even says in there, I think it's kind of funny, it? but he didn't cut the birds in two. Because everybody would waste the message on thinking, how did he cut those birds into? Cut those birds into. He didn't cut the birds into, he just put them across from each other. And there he is. He has this bloody, gutty little pathway with animals cut in half on each side. Isn't the Bible a strange book? Doesn't God do strange things on occasion? And Abram brought all these to him, cut them into, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut it in half. And then, verse 11, and I remember the reading through this in the past, wondering, I wonder why Moses recorded that for us. Verse 11, it's like your scripture memory verse for the week. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Isn't that an interesting little tidbit of information? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, guided by the, the authoritative writing in his pen through the Holy Spirit as Moses recorded history, he takes the time to put this little note in there that the vultures came down and tried to get to these animals and Abram spent evidently much of the afternoon shooing away the vultures. Then he'd go sit down on a rock underneath a tree and here comes the vulture would land and you know how they come walking over and then he'd take a stick and go after them. What's that all about? I really needed that information and you know. Well, listen, I think, number four, that this is really a powerful illustration. You know, I didn't think of this on my own, but as I read the commentaries, it it did become clear. One of the things that the commentators speculate, and again, I say speculate or surmise, is that, that there is a, this is a preface to the ceremony that's taking place, and there is... What is happening here is a, is a picture, a living picture of what God is going to pronounce is going to happen to his people for, for the next 430 years. And that is that they are going to be attacked viciously from an enemy from without. And Abram is shooing them away. And so there is evidently a kind of a foreboding picture of how Abram's descendants are going to be vulnerable and are going to be attacked from the forces of darkness. One commentator, and I don't think you can prove this, but one commentator even speculated that one of the primary gods in Egypt is is a bird of prey. He had a name for it. And that it was a foreshadowing of the attack of Egypt upon God's people. I don't know if that's true, but I thought that was kind of an interesting note there in verse 11. And picturing in my mind these bald-headed vulture, desert vultures coming in there and Abram chasing them off with a stick. Well, we have this strange preparation that's gone on. We now have a powerful illustration in these buzzards coming in. And, and Abram, there's going to be some oppression. There's going to be an attack. 
And the fifth thing that God does is he now makes a prophetic statement about coming tribulation. The coming tribulation, number five. And I don't mean the tribulation that's in the book of Revelation. I mean the tribulation, a time of horrible, horrible burden and trouble for Abram's descendants. God now is going to prophetically speak six or seven things that are going to happen with God's people. Look at verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Excuse me. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. I take it that evidently Abram's a little bit exhausted from his work and he's hot and tired from chasing away the buzzards. But I also would take it that this is a spiritual thing going on here and that God induces a deep, dark sleep on Abram. Abram is going to be totally asleep. And in his sleep, he's going to dream. He's going to see things as he sleeps. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. The word dreadful there is, a, in, in like in the New King James translates it, horrible. It's the idea of a, a terrifying experience. Part of what's going to happen here is Abram is going to encounter God himself. Have you ever noticed in Scripture how when people encounter the living God that they're terrified? They fall on their face. And people, people say all kinds of things about what they're, what they're going to do when they see God. I suspect what you're going to do is fall on your face. It's incredible. And so we have a statement now about this coming tribulation. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, okay, now listen to what the Lord says. Abram. It's not in the text, but he's talking to Abram. Know for certain. Okay? Know this for sure, Abram. This is going to happen. That, number one, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Okay? So here God is promising them a land, but he's telling him that your descendants are going to live in a land that's not their own. And they will be enslaved. Your descendants are going to be slaves. Ever worry about your grandkids and what's going to happen to them? All grandparents do, don't they? He says, your grandkids are going to be slaves, Abram. Maybe this is part of this dreadful darkness that's upon him in this sleep. And they are going to be mistreated for 400 years. I take that to be a round number. We know now, knowing the historical account, that God is speaking specifically about the enslavement in Egypt during Joseph's time and time on out to Moses' deliverance. And it was actually 430 years. He's going to reference 400 years. I take it to be just round numbers. For 400 years, we would do that commonly. I don't think we have to pick apart the Bible on that point. And they will be enslaved and mistreated. And it will be for 400 years. But, verse 14, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And didn't God send horrible plagues upon them? Culminating in... The death of the firstborn. Can you imagine that night in Egypt? The wailing and the screaming and the horror of the firstborn of every living creature in Egypt. Dead in its bed. Dead in its stall. Incredible. Horrible. Except for the the Israelites were safe with the Passover blood on their doors, of course. Beautiful foreshadowing of the blood of Christ. And afterward, the end of verse 14, they will come out with great possession. And we know now that on that night of the Passover, didn't the Egyptians literally take their jewelry boxes and dump them into the pillowcases of the Israelites as they left town? Get out of here and take this stuff. Don't come back. Even somehow they were so compelled to get rid of these people, identifying with them the horror that they had just experienced in the ten plagues, that they needed them out of there. They even granted them And here it was prophesied 430 years before this, or even more than that, but long before that. They were in Egypt 430 years. He said, um, and they will come out with great possessions. Now verse 15, God number 6 gives promised consolation to Abram. Look what he says. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace, and be buried at a good old age. It's interesting, isn't it? Here's Abram in this dark, deep, horrible sleep. 
And it's terrifying, and he's hearing all of these things that are going to happen to his descendants. And then God says, but you, Abram, you're going to live to be an old man, and you're just going to die in your rocking chair one of these days. It's not going to happen during your lifetime. Okay? A promised consolation in a sense. He could take a little bit of peace from that. Well, at least it's not going to happen to me. I don't know. I'm, taxes are bad now, but my grandkids, they're going to get sunk by them, but I'm going to die before that all comes due. And then he says, verse 16, that there's only, number seven, four more generations. I think you could also write down that this is God's statute of limitations. In the fourth generation, verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. If you jump down to God's description of the land that they're going to possess, he gives all of those tights, you know, the, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites. Those people groups are all being lumped together as the Amorites. It's a general a general word for all of the people who now possess the land. And with all these city-states and these different, somewhat nation, different nationality of people, but um, identified somewhere along the line as these specific ites. And they're the ones who possess the land. And God says, it's going to be four more generations. Well, there's 400 plus years, and so... You say, how is that a generation? And the idea is, I take it that these patriarchs basically were living about 100 years right now. And so after about 400 years, they would then come in and possess the land. Four more generations, and then God's statute of limitations was going to run out. I want you to notice the end of verse 16, because it explains a lot about when you get to the book of Joshua, how Joshua could go through and with the edge of the sword and with a fire torch, annihilate these people off the face of the earth. It didn't just happen. God had been watching for hundreds of years of these people. Look what it says. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What's it saying? It's as though God, sitting above the throne of the earth, circle of the earth on his throne, is watching these people, and he's saying, I'll give you a leash, and your leash is so long, and when you reach the limit of my patience, and you reach the limit of your sinfulness, then the wages of your sin is death, buddy, and that's it. And it's going to take four more generations. Romans chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 3 says that God is a patient God. He is long-suffering. He is not wanting people to perish. And that He holds back His wrath so that people will turn their face to God and repent. I want you to take just a second on this point because this is an important point because people will point to this and to the book of Joshua and they say, see, that if you have that kind of a God, I don't want anything to do with Him. A God who will go in and wipe out men, women, children. You see, when Joshua went into these city-states 400 plus years later, out of the fulfillment of the prophetic statement promised to Abram in Genesis chapter 15, Joshua was God's instrument of justice. And here it is. Their sin had finally filled up the tub of God's patience. And it was over. Just like one day, for all people living today, God's patience will run out and it's over. Bam. He only gives you so long. What kind of people were these? They were sinful people just like us. Now I want you to turn to, uh, turn to Leviticus chapter 18 for just a minute. I think we have time to do this because I think it's helpful because this is a problem in some people's mind. How could God wipe men, women, children, babies off the face of the earth in the book of Joshua entirely and burn their cities and that not be cruel or mean? And was Joshua right to do that? The Leviticus chapter 18 puts it in perspective. The beginning of the chapter, this chapter is not suitable to read in its entirety in this congregation this morning, but we can read the beginning and we can read the end of it. Because in, in between, it's going to list such horrible statements. Leviticus chapter 18 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites, 18.1 of Leviticus, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Now look, you must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Now what do they do in the land of Canaan? The land of Canaan is exactly what we're talking about that they are going to possess 
promised by God to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. And you must not do what they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. Now, look up here for just a minute and let me say something. Sometimes I get accused of being an old fogey when I speak to young people at camp and stuff because I, I challenge them not to just hook, line, and sink or do all the things that their pagan teenager friends do. From the piercings to the tattoos to the music to the movies. And I say, look, you're God's people. You should not look and act like them. And, and they say, well, you're a legalist, Pastor Van. In grace, we can do everything. Do you ever notice how in Scripture God always calls His people to be distinct from the pagan, unsaved world around them? And I recognize that it's a matter of the heart. It's not an external circumcision. It's a circumcision of the heart. And I recognize that. I also recognize that Paul taught that all things were lawful, but all things are not expedient. But you'll notice when God had a people all to himself in a theocracy, he made sure that they did not behave like the rest of the world. He said, you don't do it that way. You do it my way. You don't look like them. You don't act like them. You don't behave like them. And you must, verse 4, obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And then beginning with verse 6, it turns very R-rated, and he makes a list of the most horrible, horrible kinds of sin. And he said, this is what's going on in Canaan. This is why I've given them 400 years, but this is why it's over, man. It is over. Now pick it up back at verse 24. And he says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. You see, I have sat here and I have watched them and they have just defiled themselves. They've defiled the land. They've corrupted their own children. They have horribly sinned and perverted everything that I've designed to be good. And I have sat here for 430 years and they never once turned to me and looked at me. And now my clock has run out and the wages of their sin is death. And mark it down just like when you throw a ball up in the air, it comes down. You never throw a ball up in the air before supper and wonder, well, after supper, I'll come look for it. It might be on its way down. It never takes a right-hand turn. You throw it up, it comes down. Why? Because of the law of gravity. And just as true as there is a law of gravity, there is God's spiritual law of depravity. And it is this, that the wages of sin is death. That's true. You cannot take away that law. You can't change that law. It's an established spiritual law. The wages of sin is death. The only thing you can do is you can interrupt it by covering yourself with the righteousness of Christ, who was our sin bearer and shed his blood for our sins so that God in his grace will hold back his wrath on us. He says, look, do not defile yourselves, verse 24, in any of these ways, because this is how the nations I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled. So I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws the native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were brought before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. There it is. Back to Genesis 15. If you struggle with how it is that God could wipe innocent people off the face of the earth, keep in mind that Joshua, Joshua did it in direct obedience and he was God's instrument of perfect justice. Joshua didn't just go crazy and murder innocent people. God commanded Joshua out of the fact that these people had defiled themselves for 430 years after he spoke to Abram. Time is up. The wages of sin is death. There it is. Yes, we serve a loving, gracious, kind God.
but we serve a holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous God who cannot tolerate sin. Verse 17. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. We now have the passage going from strange to stranger. We have number eight, if you're listing these little explanation points, a spectacular ratification. A spectacular ratification. What do I mean by that? God is making a covenant. He's ratifying this covenant, and it is a spectacular ceremony that Abram, in this horrible sleep, now sees the very presence of God. Look, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, God in the form of a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch. Isn't it interesting how God often in a theophany, or when God appeared before men and spoke to them, he appeared to them in the form of fire. Moses and the pieces. Smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and he passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. This is a spectacular ratification number eight and number nine. It is a promise that from Abram's perspective is free from obligation. In other words, God is the one who's making the promise and Abram is sound asleep by design of God. He put him to sleep so that he couldn't even walk between the two pieces. Now let's explain this weird ceremony. Abram cut apart those animals, spread them apart, and God, in the form of the fire pot and the smoking torch, smoking fire pot and the burning torch, passes through the pieces. This is a Mesopotamian contractual ceremony that... As far as anybody can understand it, it means I've made this agreement with you. Now I'm going to walk through these cut in half slain animals. And if I ever violate my word, may it be to me what it is to these animals. We actually have in Jeremiah chapter 34 a a picture of this. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 34 and there's an explanation of it. Not for this particular ceremony, Where's Jeremiah? Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. There he is. Jeremiah. You know the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet, by the way? You know how we have major prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. It's just the length of the book. The major prophets are long and the minor prophets are short. That's all there is to it. Pretty technical, huh? We're in Jeremiah. Chapter 34, look at verse 17. Jeremiah 34, look at verse 17. This is very interesting here. You'll notice something. You may have never read this page before. Verse 17, Jeremiah 34. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom for your fellow countrymen. So I now proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, by plague and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. He's speaking to a disobedient Israel. The men who have violated my covenant. Here's the explanation. Look at this, verse 18. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf... I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives and their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and beasts of the earth. Back to Genesis 15. You got the idea? The idea is we made a promise, we made a covenant and we're going to walk through this and if I ever violate my word, may I be like those dead animals, dead and cut up. It's a powerful picture. And in the Eastern mind that made sense and it was a, it was a real thing. You know, a lot of people probably pay their mortgage if they had to go cut a calf in half and a couple goats in half, and lay them out on Main Street in front of the bank and walk through it with the banker. You know? And you're going to do this? A lot of people wouldn't be in divorce court if they had to do a ceremony like that. We say words and we sign with the pen, and it, it does mean something, but boy, these words, these living, active, 
participatory covenants were powerful realities, weren't they? It's not a bad idea. And so we have this spectacular ratification. Interesting, Abram does not walk through. Only God walks through. You see, this is a unilateral covenant. This is a God-sided covenant. This is God saying, Abram, I'm making this promise to you. And it has nothing to do with you in the sense of you don't have to do something to uphold it. I'm, I'm telling you, this is the way it is. It was a promise, number nine, free from obligation, verse 18. Abram was asleep, and on the day the Lord made the covenant with Abram, to your descendants I give this land from the river Egypt. And then number 10, he gives the exact geographical locations. And he goes on and he says, from the great river of Egypt, there's a little bit of speculation which river it is. Your Bible's a footnote usually what that is a river Wadi or something like that, to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gerashites, and Jebusites. They knew exactly where this land was. Technically, for a short period of time, underneath the, the reign of David, they at least politically ruled this, this much land. Other than that, they have never really possessed all that land. We're not going to get into it today, but do you know that's why when you watch the news today, they're still fighting over the land, and that's why there's a group in Israel that would say, we're not going to give up our land to the Palestinians. That's our land. Where'd you get that land? Who made it your land? And they go to Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. There it is. It was God's, and he gave it to him, and it was an unconditional, everlasting covenant, and he meant what he said. Well, there it is. That's a pretty strange passage of Scripture, isn't it? In two weeks from today, we're going to start into Genesis chapter 16. Pastor Everett will be in the pulpit next Sunday. We're not quite done yet, but uh, let me just tell you that I want you to read, if you will, for your devotions or in your quiet time, read chapter 16. Because here's Abram having this powerful spiritual experience, and the very next verse we have is he's laying down with his servant girl trying to have a baby with her in a complete, utter collapse and lapse of faith. Aren't we fragile? Aren't we weak even at our strongest points? Well, how do we apply this? Here's a couple thoughts in applying this interesting passage of Scripture where God has spoken to Abram. Number one, I think that out of this passage, we can find a confidence that, number one, the Word of God is absolutely reliable. That when God speaks, His Word is reliable. He makes this covenant. He walks through. You do not have to doubt the Word of God. You know that Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says that God who does not lie, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 says it is impossible for God to lie. Do you find that you walk in disobedience or in lapse of faith when you, like Eve, and when you, like Abram, begin to doubt the Word of God? Listen, God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and when He gives His Word, it is 100% reliable. He cannot lie. Number one lesson out of the passage, the Word of God is absolutely reliable. Number two, closely related to this, is the promises of God are absolutely trustworthy. So when God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, Elizabeth, when you're all alone in Huntington, West Virginia, and He says, I will never leave you or forsake you, He means it, no matter how lonely you feel, no matter how confused the future seems sometimes. When He says, so, Isaiah 41.10, do not fear for I am with you. I am your God. I will comfort you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He means it. He means it. His promises are absolutely trustworthy. Number three, I think a third lesson out of this, less out of this text, and we spent the, uh, probably the most time talking about it. Number three is the patience of God is limited. The patience of God is limited. 430 years, but that's not a long time, really. I'll be patient because I want men and women and boys and girls to see me. I want them to turn to my ways. I want them to receive my word. 
But God's patience is limited. And just like in this passage, he said, Abram, you're not going in the land right now. Four more generations are going to go by. And then they get to come in. And when they do, we're going to sweep the carpet because my patience will have run out. Listen, my friend, you're not going to live forever. Do you know that? You know that. We don't like to think about it. You know, the most important things we can do is to recognize that God is God and we are not. And that as a sinful people, God demands a righteousness out of me that I cannot produce. And as we talked about last week, He has as a gift the grace that by faith I can receive and believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I can have imputed, I can have given over, accounted, credited to my account the righteousness of Christ by no merit of my own. And then I don't have to worry about the patience of God running out. Because I am safe, leaning on Jesus. And my victory is in Jesus. And He is my all in all. And I'm not in this on my own strength. But the patience of God is limited. And we have a cocky world out there and a whole bunch of cocky countries with cocky leaders who think they have it together that the clock is ticking on them. The clock is ticking on them. And God is at work in the nations today just like He was then. It might take 430 years. We don't know what God's time is. Fourthly, the blessing of God is often only experienced through suffering. Can I say that again? Out of this passage, I think we can see that the blessing of God is often only experienced after suffering. Did you get the weight of what God told Abram would happen to his descendants? You're going to be slaves. You're going to be abused. It's going to be horrible. But after that, you'll enter the land. Man, that's where the hymn writers spiritualized everything, isn't it? Oh, Beulah land. Hey, I might be on this side of the Jordan now working hard and it might be painful, but I got a land awaiting for me that I'm going to enter one day by the grace of God, through the promises of God. Listen, there might be suffering now. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first in John 15, 18. Listen, The Christian life isn't always a bed of roses. Everything is not always fun. Some days are very difficult. And some days when you've got a hose down your nose and hoses coming from other places and you wonder what in the world God's doing, why is it this way? Just know that God often allows suffering for many reasons and that His blessings often are on the other end of the suffering. Sometimes in this earth, sometimes in the world to come. In heaven. Number five, finally. I think this is an interesting point out of this passage, and I think you'll see it. The plan of God for my life is not always just about me. The plan of God for my life isn't always about me. Here's what I mean by this. It really struck me in this passage that what Abram was going through and the promises that God was making to Abram he wasn't going to get to, f- to go in the land, in essence. He, a lot of this was about, it was about generations to come. That God was at work in Abram here because he had a plan way down the road. Isn't that interesting? Do you think that it's possible that God is doing things in your life and allowing things in your life and teaching you lessons and he's at work in your life and you may in this life never know how God's going to use it someday? We don't know what God is doing. You don't know what God's doing in your life that He's doing to impact your children or your grandchildren someday. We don't know what God is doing in the church today completely, around the world completely, so that what He's going to do in generations to come. I read Stephen and Kirsten's uh, letter home yesterday. And you can just feel the weight on them of the spiritual darkness, the vultures. Stephen's having to spiritually speaking, try to beat off the vultures right now as they try to consume them in the desert of Africa. And they're, they're trying to enter into a season of prayer to, for God to just lift the darkness. You know, in Stephen McKenzie's lifetime, he may never, ever see the vision that God put in his heart for that part of the world. 
and maybe even in his children's lifetime, but maybe in his grandchildren or his great-grandchildren's lifetime, something's going to happen because of where he is and what is God's will and the pain and the suffering of the ministry now. The blessing will come later, maybe only in heaven for him. And the fruit of that labor may be for generations to come that he will never see in this lifetime. You have that right here in this passage, don't you? God is not in a big hurry. God often is doing things in my life that I'm not going to see the fruit of it, but somebody else will. My job is not to bail. My job is to be faithful. What do we get out of a passage like this? The word of God is absolutely reliable. The promises of God are absolutely trustworthy. The patience of God is limited. It's a warning. The blessing of God is often only experienced through suffering. And the plan of God for my life is often not just about me. May the Lord bless you as you ponder some of these things. Yes, it's a strange passage of Scripture as God spoke to Abram. I wonder if God has spoken to your heart today through his word. Listen closely to his still small voice and respond accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day at hand. Thank you for the new morning of the new first day of the week. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ through which we have our justification. Thank you for the testimony of these patriarchs and for this great story of Abram as he dealt with you there in that horrible night. And I'm sure he struggled to understand everything that was happening. Thank you for the reliability of your word and for the trustworthy nature of your promises. Father, help us to to depend fully upon them by faith, to not waver. Help us to be moldable and pliable as you do your work in us, often through pain and suffering, with blessing to come tomorrow. Help us not to bail. Thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in every way. We'll count on him for our salvation and our sustenance. It's in his name we pray. Amen.